The Apostle John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and all the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Amen. Blessing and honor and glory and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So grateful for our worship in song. And on this Pentecost Sunday, I just was thinking about those verses. Right now is a taste of eternity. You get that, don't you? Right now, what's happening is a taste of eternity, our forever brought by the Lord. So welcome to uh, the family of uh, the redeemed. Welcome to Windsor Road Christian Church. And it is with much joy that I gather with uh, people that I love, uh, my church, beloved church family, that we've all been purchased by our great King, Jesus. And if this is your first Sunday here, very quickly, I pray that you feel very much at home here and that you receive the hospitality of the Lord through His people. Um, my name is Randy, and I'm privileged uh, to be the senior minister here at the church. I'm going to be in a place called the Fireside Room. Uh, that's a, a space that we've designated for, for hospitality, and uh, it's not that there are no other places for hospitality, but I'll be in that place, and uh, my wife, Sarah, and I will be there, and our staff and elders, and we would just love to have a few moments of, of time with you, if, especially if you're feeling new, if you have any encouragements and prayer requests, uh, we want to know about it. We want to pray with you and for you. So um, with that, I want to uh, direct our attention to our scripture reading for today. Our scripture reading, uh, I've got several passages of scripture that we'll be looking at in our teaching time, but I want to pay attention to Luke chapter 14, verses 21 to 23. Luke 14, verses 21 to 23. Uh, you'll find that uh, uh, on the screen here. Uh, and I want to just read these few verses. And I, I've tagged our message today. I've titled our message, The Disabled Body, The Disabled Body, A Wondrously Wounded Banquet of Belonging. The Disabled Body, A Wondrously Wounded Banquet of Belonging. Belonging. We're in a series of messages on the body, this body, and we've been looking at different aspects of embodiment, and today we're going to consider the disabled body. You have asked for this message, and so uh, this is why we share this, this gospel news, the disabled body, a wondrously wounded banquet of belonging. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you, ha what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, 
go out. Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. This is the word of God. So Sarah and I saw a documentary the other night. Um, It's not often that I prepare for Sunday messages by watching television. (laughs) But we did. We saw a documentary the other night. Uh, It is a moving story about big life questions, and it pertains to our theme today on the disabled body. It is a movie that's titled Normie. Normie. And I want you to watch this trailer of the documentary Normie. Can we see it now? Are you intrigued? Hmm. Yeah. Um, What is normal anyway? Hmm. What makes us valuable? Um, 
Is it our normalness or our abilities, or is it simply that we are loved? And those are the questions uh, by Anne-Marie Kerrigan, uh, who you briefly met here in this trailer, a recent graduate of Highland Park High School who has Down syndrome, and in this faith-based documentary, Kerrigan, who struggles with loneliness and depression, sets out across the country to interview people of all abilities. And so she has a conversation with a West Point-educated physician. She has a conversation with a guitar-playing, orthodox, Bible-teaching, tattoo-covered pastor. She interviews parents of children with Down syndrome. She even interviews an illusionist. And she learns that disability need not detract from fully expressing the image of God. Your life has meaning no matter your capacities. And it's a powerful, powerful documentary. And um, Normie, by the way, is uh, from Anne Marie's own vocabulary. It's how she describes people who do not have Down syndrome. And that's where the title of the documentary came. Um, We've been in a series on human embodiment. What does the Bible say about the human body? And we've learned over the several Sundays that according to the Bible, you have a body, you are a body. You have a soul, you are a soul. According to the Bible, you are a created, gendered body. You are a body-soul composite. The God who created the heavens and the earth. This God created your body. And unique among all living creatures is the Bible's claim that we are made in the image of God. We've looked at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We've looked at Psalm 139, verse 13, which says it's a, it's, a, it's a prayer. Lord, you knit me together. That word has to do with embroidery, to embroider. Lord, you knit me together in my mother's womb. So to knit describes God's intentional, methodical, distinctive ways of creating each human life. Knitting creates one object at a time. Knitting is painstaking. Knitting is purposeful. Knitting is often indecipherable to all but the knitter. As the stitches bunch up on the needles and pieces may still be missing, sometimes it looks like a mistake, but the knitter knows the plan. The knitter knows the plan. And God is not surprised when a person is born. He knows that person from the very beginning and is working steadily to make him or her into the reality he has called him or her to be. Thus, knitting is never useless. Every human life images God. Every human life. So as we think about the disabled body... We need to understand and acknowledge that bodily abilities or disabilities in themselves neither advantage nor disadvantage the imaging of God's glory. 
And it's very important that we remember this truth and that it, that it go not just from our head but into our heart and affect the way we relate. Otherwise, we may find ourselves the subject of not-so-flattering stories about disability etiquette. I'm thinking of a book recommended to me by one of you uh, by author Amy Kenny. Amy, and this is how she describes herself, Amy is a disabled scholar and a Shakespearean lecturer who hates Hamlet. The title of her book, as you can see, is My Body is Not a Prayer Request. Wow, that got my attention. Uh, the, her book is a biting critique of the assumptions and intrusiveness of those whom she calls prayer perpetrators. Prayer perpetrators. Allow me some choice paragraphs here. She says, to assume that my disability needs to be erased in order for me to live an abundant life is disturbing, not only because of what it says about me, but also because of what it reveals about people's notions of God. I bear the image of the Alpha and the Omega. My disabled body is a temple for the Holy Spirit. I have the mind of Christ. There's no caveat to those promises. I don't have a junior Holy Spirit because I'm disabled. To suggest that I am anything less than sanctified and redeemed is to suppress the image of God in my disabled body and to limit how God is already at work through my life. Maybe, maybe we need to be freed not from disability, but from the notion that it limits my ability to showcase God's radiance to the church. Amy says that not all impairments are disabilities. Instead, it's the way the world responds to these impairments. That's what's disabling. She says, not all disabled people are in pain. Not all suffer from our bodies, but all of us suffer from the way society mocks or limits those bodies. And, and in her book, she distinguishes between curing and healing. Curing and healing, she writes, instead of desperately trying to cure all disabilities, the church should do the slow and difficult work of healing the surrounding society by tearing down the spaces and practices and mindsets that are inaccessible to disabled people, even when those spaces are inside church facilities. She says, I'm not waiting for a cure to live an abundant life, and if folks would take the time to get to know me as more than a diagnosis, they would know that. And then, in her book, <laughs> each chapter concludes with a top ten list, but not the kind of top ten that you want to be known for. In one chapter, she concludes with top ten at least." She says, folks say these things to me. Folks have actually said these things to me about being disabled, usually to make themselves feel more comfortable with my body. At least. Prepare for a cringe factor here to come over the room. At least you'll be running in heaven. At least you're only physically disabled. At least it's not cancer. At least you have a husband to care for you. At least you don't look disabled. People actually say those things to her. 
that would hurt. They do hurt, yeah. At least you can count your blessings. At least you don't let your disability define you. At least you've inspired others to do what? <laughs> at least this is part of God's plan. At, at, this is terrible. At least you get good parking. They've said that to her. I'm still processing her very important thoughts about how able-bodied people view disability. Now, she makes this clear. Amy's point is not to stop praying for the sick or the diseased. Her point is don't make assumptions. Don't make assumptions. For instance, for instance, when talking about disability, some use people-first language, such as, I'm a person with a disability, okay? Others use identity language, I'm a disabled person. For Amy, it's the latter, okay? She says, uh, you know, let's just, let's just call it what it is, I'm a disabled person. That's, she says, I want to shun the shame, and I don't think disability is a bad word, see? But for, for, for others, they may have different thoughts. Well, what do I do? Here it is. Just ask and just listen. Just ask and just listen. Asking keeps you from making assumptions and listening keeps you learning. Learning. Something I've learned this week is about how one's worldview can influence and inform the entire discussion about disability. And so let me just quickly highlight three worldviews which may affect and inform this matter of disability. A biblical worldview on disability differs from a modern or postmodern perspective. And how people are viewed affects how people are treated. So, for instance, the 20th century modern world, the 20th century modern world, sees disability as an abnormal part of life in a normal world. Abnormal part of life in a normal world. That's 20th century modern worldview. And, well, you know, so differences from the norm are seen as something other, something abnormal, which does not have a positive connotation, does it? It leads to stigmatizing. Modernism, the modern worldview. Our 21st century postmodern worldview sees disability as a normal part of life in a normal world. So one um, nationally known speaker on disability who adopts a postmodern perspective says this, having a disability is a difference like any other human characteristic. It's not a deficiency. It's by no means a tragedy and does not deserve pity or benevolence or charity. And now is the time to recognize and celebrate disability rather than ignore, devalue, or use it as a justification for lower expectations. Well, okay, okay, all right. But is it really the case that disability is no different than, say, hair color? So celebrate the individual? Yes. 
celebrate the diagnosis. So that leads to kind of a relativizing, right? Whereas modernism leads to stigmatizing, postmodernism leads to relativizing. Modernist thought would see disability as something abnormal in the normal. Postmodern thought sees uh, normal and normal. Biblical Christianity goes deeper. Biblical Christianity sees disability as something normal in an abnormal world. So when God made the heavens and the earth, he said, good. When he created Adam and Eve, he said, very good. Then tragedy struck. When our first parents chose to be God instead of bear God's image, the fall of humanity occurred, adversely impacting every aspect of creation. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, the creation was subjected to frustration and not by its own choice. So sin led our world to become an abnormal world. And this marring of creation has seeped not only into the spiritual but also the physical, the intellectual, the emotional, the psychological, the social, and the effects carry over today into our world, our work, our bodies, our relationships with ourselves and others and God. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, 22, the whole creation has been groaning. See? Disability is a manifestation of our broken world. It's a normal part of life in an abnormal world. At the same time, God is still at work. And more often than we might initially notice, God uses disability. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about. Throughout the Bible, God uses people with weakness, inability, and brokenness to reveal his glory and teach us to rely on him and not on ourselves. So let's briskly go through some passages of Scripture that speak about how God uses people with limitations, with capacities. And I'm going to begin with Jacob in Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32. So... Jacob, the Bible teaches, uh, you know, he's a trickster. He's a deceiver. He spent a lot of his life doing that. And there's a certain amount of self-pride um, and arrogance and hubris that he kind of carries because, you know, he thinks he's the smartest person in the room. He tricked his brother Esau and his father Isaac out of the firstborn's blessing. Uh, after this, he fled and for many years lived with his uncle Laban. In Genesis 32, it's time for Jacob to return to the land of promise to face Esau. He hasn't seen him in years. The night before he sees Esau, after all of his family and his possessions and everything that the Lord has blessed him with, crosses the, 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 the Jabbok River, He's all by himself, and the night before he sees Esau, Genesis 32 records this mysterious all-night wrestling match between Jacob and this mysterious stranger 
who is a manifestation of the Lord. It's not a six-minute wrestling match. It's all night. All night. This stranger will not give up. Jacob will not give up. And Jacob's winning. As dawn approaches him, Jacob is is about to win. And just when it looks like Jacob has the upper hand, he's going to win yet again. You know what happens. You read the story. The stranger takes his finger and just touches. Touches Jacob's hip. Boink. Match over. That's it. Painful wrenching out of joint of the hip socket. Still, Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And he gets blessed, but he also gets a limp. And Jacob was renamed Israel. Israel, you have contended with God and have overcome. Meaning this. You have struggled with God, and you survived the experience. Yes. And for the rest of his life, he limps. And and here's the verse, Genesis 32, 32. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because the Lord touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Isn't that an interesting verse? So so every time Israel ate meat, now don't touch that piece. Why? They recalled Jacob's disability. So it took an unwelcome attack by God to show Jacob his place in God's story. When Jacob limps to Esau, he's totally dependent. He he doesn't know what's going to happen next. He's totally dependent on God, which is exactly what God wants. And that's what it often takes, right? We're just totally dependent on God. It took a violent fight, a painful and permanent body impairment, a conspicuous limp, and the social marker of a funny walk. All of it changed Jacob's perspective. Jacob's limp was meant to remind him of his spiritual brokenness. No more could he pretend to be strong. Instead, his disability would amplify God's strength in and through him. And and over time, the nation of Israel would identify themselves with this wrestling. In our lives, beloved, God wrestles with us, don't you know? in order to both bless us and cause us to walk with frailty. Jacob's limp. Do you see how effortless it was for God to win the match against Jacob? It's like he was just playing with him. Just playing with him. And then one touch, and it's over. This is our God. And at the same time, the God is the God who walks with us. And Jacob's limp reminded him and Israel and us that when God renames us, he makes us new people. Thanks be to Jesus. Well, quickly now, let's go to Moses in Exodus chapter 4. God called Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt. There, in front of the burning bush, Moses gave four excuses. Who am I? Who are you? 
What if they don't believe me? And then he says, how can I speak? Now, scholars will argue whether or not Moses had a disabling speech impediment, but God's response is explicit. Exodus 4, 11 and 12. Then the Lord said to him, that is Moses, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what to speak. Isn't that what your Bible says? So God not only does not deny responsibility for conditions that we would call disabilities, blindness, deafness, muteness. He assumes responsibility for them. And God says these things come from and are made by him. That's unsettling, isn't it? If you're not unsettled by that, Anne-Marie Kerrigan, in the documentary, pleads with her father, why did God make me like this? And at that point in the documentary, her dad just bursts into tears, and they embrace. He's just like, honey, I don't know. I just don't know. It's an exhausted, I don't know. I mean, he's, he's asked that himself a thousand times. He says, honey, I just know I love you. And I just know I'm here. I just know I'm here. And, and I think that was one of the most meaningful parts of the documentary because the parent says, you know, what, has, what I've had to grieve is not so much the death of the future that I had hopes for for my child, but what I've had to grieve is the death of my future as a parent and what I thought parenting was going to be. And what my dreams of parenting were going to be like. That had to die so that I could truly, truly love Anne-Marie. My power is made perfect in weakness. God's promise to Moses, I will be with you. I will be with you. Hmm. Quickly now. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, David and Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Now, if you're going to walk away with something from this sermon, I want you to know how to pronounce that word. Okay? So say that with me on three. One, two, three. Mephibosheth. One, one more time. One, two, three. Mephibosheth. Okay, who's Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth is the grandson of Saul. Mephibosheth is the son of David's best friend, Jonathan. And in 2 Samuel 9, David is secure as the king of Israel. Saul is dead. David rules over all Israel. He administers justice and equity to all people. One day, David ponders, now that he's on the throne, uh, David ponders, is there anyone in the house of Saul that I may show chesed, that I may show grace and love for the sake of Jonathan, my best friend? So David summons Ziba, who had been the chief servant of Saul. Are you Ziba? I am your servant. He better say that. Is there anyone in the house of Saul to whom I may show the chesed of God? Well, yes, there is, your majesty. There is, there's a son of Jonathan, crippled in both feet, 2 Samuel 9. Well, where is he? And Ziba knows the town and the address. He's in the town of Machar. Uh, excuse me, the house of Machar in the town of Lodabar. Lodabar, 2 Samuel 9, Lodabar. Lodabar means no-name town. 
Okay, means nowhere. Out of the way. To, why out of the way? Well, it was good that, I mean, Mephibosheth was thinking, I'm going to get out of David's way. Because when one dynasty often took over another dynasty, you killed the enemy's heirs. That's just eliminate the competition. Not personal, it's business. That's, that's how, that's the culture. And, and it's not until verse 6 of 2 Samuel 9 that we even see the name of Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth means from the mouth of shame. From the, so this, this the shamed one from a no-name town, D- David summons him. This can't be good in his perspective. And Mephibosheth came to David, and David's first words conveyed dignity and grace. His, David's first words out of his mouth, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, my best friend's son, I am your servant. Fear not, David says, as if Mephibosheth had met an angel or something. Fear not, you're in a safe place. David says, I want to give you hesed. I want to give you loving kindness for the sake of Jonathan. I want you to have your grandfather's estate. It's yours, all of it. I want you to eat at my table. Mephibosheth says, who am I? I'm just a dead dog that I would receive such a bounty. And David calls in Ziba and says, all that was Saul's is now Mephibosheth's. And it was considerable. uh, Because Ziba had... Uh, 15 sons and 20 servants. That's quite an estate. All of them now serve the house of Mephibosheth. And Ziba and his sons and servants are going to manage the farm and produce the food and sell the food and take the profit and put it into Mephibosheth's account. Why? Because the king said so. That's why. Oh, and Mephibosheth will eat at the table of the king always, always. You shall eat at my table always. So that not only guarantees a place of honor at court, but it also guarantees access. Access to those directing the affairs of state. So now Mephibosheth is in the know. Always, three times, always shows up in 2 Samuel 9. So at the word of the king, Mephibosheth, who had self-identified as a dead dog, who had lived in someone else's house in a no-name town, he's now a very wealthy land baron. From nobody out of nowhere to royalty at the king's table. His story is a story of identity change brought by the king's grace. And it is a taste of what is to come in Christ. Mephibosheth's life is about one who was not just included, but one who belonged. So there's a difference between inclusive and belonging. Belonging. And God's grace achieves belonging at the banquet of the king. And so so Israel's reading this story and saying, wow, what does this teach us about how we need to treat the Mephibosheths among us? Are we the kind of nation that will gather and welcome the Mephibosheths around the table of the king? Are we the kind of church where Mephibosheths can belong? Are we? Well, then there's the parable of the banquet in Luke 14, 13. It was our scripture reading today in Luke's parable 
a king issues an invitation to a banquet, and after hearing the puny excuses of people who couldn't be bothered, the master orders his servant to fill the banquet hall with the poor and the crippled and the blind and the, blind and the, blind and the lame. And, and then when told by his servant that there was still room, the banquet host told the servant to go outside the city to more obscure places and compel them to come in that my house may be full, that my house may be full. Those whom the world sees as invisible, Jesus says, I see you. You're not invisible. It's our church's privileged mission to ensure that beloved image bearers know and feel their belonging at the king's table. And here's our big idea. You didn't think I was going to let you go without a big idea, did you? It's this, it's simple. The kingdom of God is a banquet of belonging. Amen? The king's banquet is filled with the disabled and the non-disabled and, and the normies and the non-normies and the seated with the rich and the poor and the married and the unmarried and men and women and children from every tongue and tribe and nation, everyone. By grace through faith in Christ, this banquet has been bought and brought by King Jesus. It is a place of grace. The kingdom of God is a banquet of belonging. And here's the divine surprise. When we start to do for the least of these what David did for Mephibosheth and what Jesus called his followers to do, you know what we learn? We learn that we are Mephibosheth. We are the broken and the needy. And they remind us of our true state before God. And that's the gift they bring. See, I am Mephibosheth. In my former life, I was a dead dog. But I've been adopted by the king as a son. I've been taken from nowheresville to the palace, from meaninglessness to significance, from death to life by the hesed mercy of the king. I brought nothing to offer and was given everything. Is this not the gospel? Is this not the gospel? John Swinton is a theologian. He's a teacher to preachers. And he said, it is no small thing that the heart of the Christian faith revolves around a damaged body. It is in the disabled body of the crucified Christ that we encounter our redemption. And then he talks about uh, a, a painting that he saw of the crucifixion where Jesus' crucified hands are, are in a claw, curled in a claw, showing extreme pain. And Jesus' body is pockmarked with red spots as if during the plague. The Savior identifies not just with human suffering, but with the particular infirmity of plague victims. In the broken body of Jesus, we come face to face with what it means to be human before a God who enters into our brokenness and embraces our suffering and through his body moves us to redemption. Disabled bodies carry powerful messages of redemptive gospel truth just as they are. So, the banquet of the king is a banquet of belonging brought by Christ, by grace, through faith. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father,
Thank you so much.